The word of God from Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you remain standing and pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we move into this time of exploring your word together, I pray, Lord, that you would um, just illumine our eyes, um, the eyes of our heart, Lord, that you would um, soften our hearts. We really want to understand your word. We want to not only be hearers of it, but doers. And, um, and we just recognize that this is a work of um, the Holy Spirit. And so we uh, don't presume upon your presence, but invite you in a special way to work in us, even in these moments. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Um, when I was at the Air Force Academy, I know I said it again, Ryan Flint. Um, I just got to tell stories from like my, you know, my, what I know. But I played water polo, kind of an obscure sport, I know. But one of my teammates and good friends was this guy named Derek Argel. And Derek, y'all, was a machine. I mean, he could run and swim for days. He could lift all the weights in the gym. He was like a specimen. He uh, successfully became a member of the Air Force uh, Special Forces Unit. It was called Air Combat Control. And Air Combat Controllers are to the Air Force like what SEALs are to the Navy. So like these guys are intense. And um, not only are they athletic, though, they're incredibly smart. Um, they have to pass all these tests. They have to be able to do air traffic control, which is like extremely difficult. It requires like a lot of mental, mental uh, dexterity if you know anything about it. In fact, if you know that skill set, you can make quite nice paycheck at Denver International. Um, so my friend Derek was not just a meathead. I mean, he was bright. I am sad to report that on March 30th, 2005, he was on an Iraqi aircraft that went down just outside of Baghdad, and he died, and he left behind, him, behind a wife and a little boy. Now, after he passed away in 2005, like, I began to read all about his experiences as a special forces guy. And here's what I learned about him, and not just him, but like all, about, all of these guys. 
Like these special forces guys are highly trained soldiers. And really, in some ways, they're kind of like a case study in what it means to unlock human potential. I mean, these guys can make their body and their brains do things that you and I think are impossible. Their bodies are covered with muscles that you and I didn't even know existed. And they're highly adept at using highly, like, like specialized technology. They're not ordinary human beings. Uh, they're strong, athletic, smart. But here's the thing, is they didn't become like that. They didn't unlock that potential um, just by waking up one day. That's just not how it went down. Uh, the, the way that their talent was unlocked was years and years of preparation and training. And often their training was monotonous, you know, practicing these skills over and over again. And they would prepare day after day with no fanfare. No one even knows what they're doing. But they were and are prepared for anything. Uh, they actually even train their eyes to see differently. This is what I mean. They can identify things that you and I think are innocent, but they see danger. It's, it's really impressive. Their training enables them to navigate some of the most challenging, dangerous missions anywhere any context in the whole world. Now, I know the majority of us don't exactly have dreams of joining special forces, but if we could have, but what if we could have that kind of preparedness and strength and that kind of perseverance? That is what I think the Apostle Paul is interested in. We have been studying Ephesians for months now. We're at the very last sermon in, uh, uh, that we're going to do. I know we didn't do every single verse. We did most of it, all right? Um, and we're at the very last sermon. And so Paul, towards the end of Ephesians, really just starting to, like, meddle, right? He's starting to tell us how to live our life. And that's where we are today. In this final passage, Paul is using this imagery of like the special forces of the Roman Empire military, right? And he does so to, to offer Christians a way of seeing themselves and a way of seeing their purpose. See, Paul anticipates the dangers of an enemy. And then he exhorts them to seek out this preparedness, this Christian training, so that they can execute this mission or this, this purpose that they were designed for. Now, whether or not you're into military metaphors or not, doesn't even matter. The reality that Paul describes in this passage about like preparing oneself to live with deep purpose in a world that's like filled with hindrances is absolutely relevant to every single reader or listener in this case. Christians, or, or people even who are just exploring the faith, are going to find what Paul writes here as being critical to, to living um, a, a holy and good life, a faithful life. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage, and I'm going to use special forces as a kind of controlling metaphor, pretty predictable, I guess. Uh, I think that's what Paul is doing, though. I think that's what Paul's doing, all right? So what we're going to do, if you're a note-taker, we're going to look at this in order. We're going to look at how to see the enemy, and then we're going to pursue the training, and then fulfill the mission. And those will be our three headings. So let's begin with seeing the enemy, verses 10 through 13. All right, another on-ramp here. So in the 1970s, a young girl was playing with a Ouija board. Y'all know what that is? 
Weird, creepy. Uh, she connected with some demon. That demon took control of her. Parents got scared. They called a priest to come in. Only made the demon angry. No time at all. Her head's twisting around and she's doing projectile vomiting. Okay, that didn't really happen. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the plot of the 1973 movie, The Exorcist. A movie I have not watched because I'm too much of a chicken. Um, now, I share with you that movie because it's kind of a caricature of evil. It comes straight out of our Western imagination. When we, that's what we think of when we hear those phrases that Paul uses, the, the schemes of the devil or the powers over this, present dark, over this present darkness, right? See, in the Western world, our concept of evil has been evolving, right, over centuries even. And it's actually transformed into something that I think is kind of disturbing, um, Tim Keller turned me on to this professor at um, Columbia. Uh, his name's Andrew Del Banco. In 1995, he writes a book, it's a fascinating read, called The Death of Satan. And let me just read one short excerpt of what Andrew Dan B Professor Del Banco says. He says, As science and technology gradually changed the spiritual and psychological landscape of American culture— Individuals ceased to perceive evil in the guise of demons and devils. When Americans became socially and intellectually enlightened, evil became less concrete. Eventually, evil became so abstract that Americans lost the moral constructs necessary to recognize and deal with cruelty, pain, and suffering. Evil may now be beyond the reach of our imagination Contemporary American society is in danger of being enslaved by it. Secular sociologist. What he's saying is, because our collective imagination about evil is so farcical, it's kind of created these two kinds of reactions. We either don't believe in it at all, or we believed in the sort of detached version of it. Like, because, right, we like to think of ourselves as educated, modern, scientific people, right? And so when we're confronted with the first four verses of this passage, and we hear Paul talking the way he talks about evil, on one hand, we, we believe it, but it's really only kind of something that happens like in the bush of the Amazons or something like, not certainly not here in our shopping centers, in our universities. Like it's, not it's not something we can imagine happening in our neighborhoods, right? Or, on the other hand, we just don't believe it at all, and we demythologize the Bible. Demythologize. That's kind of a fancy word. Here's what that means. In the first century, everyone, Christians, pagans, and I mean everyone, believed the world was enchanted and brimming with spiritual forces. And since, but now that since we're more educated, as critics say, we now know, because we're educated, that there are no unseen spiritual aspects to reality, right? Because we live in an exclusively material world. And really the only evil in our world are institutions, right? Those are the only pseudo-evils that exist in our world, right? Certainly in the West. And the problem with both of these sort of reactions, whether not believing in it or believing evil in this sort of detached way, is 
either Satan is real, but he doesn't look like the poltergeist, and so you can't recognize him when you see him, right? Satan is just like this cultural artifact from the Dark Ages. Or, more likely, you just don't think he exists and is active. But in both cases, you don't see the enemy. And now you're vulnerable because you don't see danger when it's close. But the Apostle Paul says, a special force must recognize danger even when other people can't. Right? So verse 11, Paul exhorts the church to put on this armor of God so that they can, what does it say? Stand against the schemes of the devil. Y'all know what schemes are? You know what schemes are? Schemes are tricks, right? They're not obvious. It takes a trained eye to see what's going on. It takes a trained eye to be able to see what's really happening. In most cases, evil comes camouflaged. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 12, right? Look at verse 12. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, there is this spiritual, this evil spiritual reality that runs like a current that's behind every bad thing that happens in the world. That's how the authors of the Bible understood the world. Listen, if you lose the ability to call something evil, or if you fail to recognize the work of Satan, you will live horribly ill-prepared, or at least your ability to live with skill in this life. You'll be naive. It's not people who believe in Satan who are naive and, and gullible. It's the people who deny his presence. Now listen, you know, cause don't, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. We, this isn't like, let's go on witch hunts, like Salem witch trial. That's not what's that. What, what's going on here is, is something more so, sophisticated. See, when people see horrible things in the world, theaters filled with children being bombed, right? They ask, why? Like, how, how could this happen? Or, or, so, or for instance, if you're going to evaluate Hitler in the Holocaust— if your only explanation for that is sociological in its orientation, that, I don't know, that Hitler had a messed up childhood or uh, parental wounds, if that's the only way you can understand that, you're actually cheapening so many people's pain. And it could make you a superficial person. And we're left without this framework combating all the evil in our world with positive thinking or positive vibes, you see. I promise you, that doesn't offer anyone any consolation at funerals. But let's, get, let's see if we can apply this even a little bit more local, a more local application. If this world were exclusively material, then when you see like your spouse or your friend or an employee or whatever, you'll actually be tempted as only seeing them as an object who is there to meet your needs, right? If the world is exclusively material, see, because it actually doesn't matter if you treat them poorly, not in any eternal sense, right? Right? 
the unseen moral constructs that are the backbone of this physical world don't exist in an exclusively material world. And so if that's how you're interacting with the world, your selfish impulses won't be curbed by seeing the spiritual and therefore the transcendent image of God in that person. You won't be accountable to it because you can't see it. But when you recognize that you have an enemy, a devil, then when you have a fight with someone that you care about, you actually won't mistake them for being your enemy, right? Like, so think about it, like in my wife, Amanda, right? We're having it out. If in that moment we say, hey, Amanda's not my enemy and I'm not hers, it might feel like that, like when we're fighting, but we're not each other's enemy because, why? We have a common enemy. We're on the same team. And he wants to destroy us, and he's cunning. And so we've got to recognize the schemes of the devil, you see. You know, the, um, I was thinking about this, the ironic thing about Satan worship. I know that's pretty rare. No, I mean, it's not a common thing, but it's a thing. Y'all have heard of it. Like, the, the ironic thing of, like, satanic worship or whatever is that those people who do it think Satan is on their team, Right? Like, yeah, we're on Satan's team. And that he likes them. He does not. He's cunning. See, Satan hates Satan worshipers too, right? He's going destroy them. Y'all see that? He's cunning. All right, let's, let's keep going on. So being able to see and recognize evil are the schemes of the evil one is the first part. Let's examine now how Paul exhorts us to pursue training. This is verses 14 through 17. So in this next section, Paul describes the various equipment pieces of a Roman soldier. And there's kind of an echo to Isaiah 59 in this. And these pieces of equipment are things that, um, things that you do or things that you put on before you go into a battle, right? So the strength we need comes from preparation, training that happens beforehand so that there, uh, our response is automatic when we come under attack, right? So, uh, you know, Austin Fitzgerald knows I, I would just read sociologists all the time. Why do I do that? Why do we like that? No one likes us but us. All right, but I read Barg and Chartrand. There's these two sociologists from NYU. They wrote this article called The Unbearable Automaticity of Being. Okay, that, what kind of title is that? Well, this is what the study shows. It's fascinating. He says, they, these two guys show that 40%, 40% of our lives are automated. Like we're on autopilot. Most of our lives are not premeditated. We're just doing what we have conditioned in our hearts and our minds. And in fact, when things are not automated or less automated, life gets tricky. Like example A, exhibit A, have you ever taught teenagers how to drive a car? Like, I'm doing that right now. It's scary. Why? As they're driving, nothing they do is automated. It's so stressful. Every glance in the mirror, every turning signal, every break, everything is premeditated and it's jerky, right? But 
when we get in a car and we're a more experienced driver, right, all of those things that we do, we're just doing them naturally. We don't even realize that we're doing it. We're just doing it within this automated process of how we've been trained, right? Why do we do that? Why can we do those things without even thinking about them? Because it's deep in our bones, right? Our reactions have been automated over time. So Paul, right, so hold that. Paul calls us to dress ourselves with the whole armor of God, okay? And what is this armor? Verse 14, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, shoes given for the gospel of peace. Verse 16, shield of faith. Verse 17, helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. I think it would be fruitful to kind of do a a whole sermon series looking at each of those individually. Uh, But I think what Paul's doing is creating this picture that are actually best understood together. Each piece of armor is a part of the gospel story, right? Peace, righteousness, salvation. These are all aspects of God's ongoing work of rescue. And so Paul is saying, put on the gospel. Now, to put something on in the Greek can mean just to carry a thing, right? You're putting on a backpack. But it can also mean to adopt certain ideas at the deepest level of your being. That's what he's saying here. Adopt the gospel at the deepest level of your being. Make the gospel cut deep grooves in your soul. Because when you do, and when Satan starts throwing out these darts at you, like he says he's going to do in verse 16, you will be prepared to handle the adversity you'll actually bleed gospel. Gospel living, gospel suffering will become instinctual, almost automated, you see. Special forces execute their mission because of the skills that they have practiced and honed and rehearsed for years, putting it on. Putting the armor of God on is something that we do before we go into battle. Like if you're putting up the storm shutters while a tornado is overhead, you're too late, right? Paul is calling us to dig the gospel story deep into our, in, into our souls. Because if you, do, if you don't do that now, you'll give up when you come under attack. You'll get swept up by culture or tragedy or vice and addiction. Listen, your heart is already automated. The question is not whether or not you're programmed or not. The question is, what is the orientation of your heart's automation? What is it automated towards? What happens to you when Satan strikes? What do you... What do you check out with? Food? The internet? What do you, what do you check out with? Do you, uh, when, when Satan strikes, do you, do you blow up with anger and resentment? What, what comes out? Do you, do you worry? Does worry come out? You, you know what worry is? Scott Sauls, I was reading what he says. He says, worry is just the fear that our idols won't come through for us. Worry is just 
Worry is just the fear that our idols won't pull through for us. We, we think that life has to work out a certain way or we can't be happy. Like your kid has to make the team or get accepted into a certain university or even has to go to college. You have to, you have to get a certain relationship, right? You have to win a certain contract at work. Worry is the fruit of your uncertainty that your idol of comfort, success, or relationship is not going to pull through for you. And so in that context, can you see how the belt of truth could be really helpful for you? If for years the truth of God's secure love for you and for your children is coursing through your veins, ensuring that the gospel story is wearing a deep channel in your soul, what would it do? It would make you steady. It would make you faithful in those hard moments. It'd make you a skillful special forces soldier who is skilled to be able to accomplish any mission, anywhere, under any circumstances without the paralysis that comes from worry, right? Okay, let's go to one last part. Let's go through the the final part. So we talked about identifying the enemy, right? We don't want to be naive. We don't want to overlook the reality of evil. Then we talked in the second part about pursuing the training. You want to put on the armor before you go into battle because if you wait till the shooting starts, you're a little late, Right? So you want the gospel to, make, to cut deep grooves in your soul, to orient and program every part of you. So let's now consider the very last part, the mission itself. This is verses 18 through 20. It's about the spring of about three years ago now, maybe four years ago. I was really getting into um, World War I. Hadn't really... Everyone always studies World War II, but World War I. So I was listening to these podcasts, and I was watching documentaries and reading articles. And here's what I learned. It's really something. Uh, it was horrible, right? Death. The death and conditions of World War I made World War II almost look like Disneyland. It was crazy. I mean, the, what was happening is that the warfare techniques and the technology were changing so rapidly at the, cha- at the turn of the century, the world was not prepared for it, and the deaths piled up so fast with shelling and chemical gas, walls of bodies, trench warfare. It's just like, oh, gosh, it's a horrible, horrible thing. Young soldiers would valiantly charge from one trench to another, knowing, knowing that 80% of them would die by this new technology called the machine gun. It's crazy. And here's what got my attention as I was reading all of these accounts, is in the middle of the horror came some of the most amazing stories of bravery. See, people actually believed that their, that their own people, that their own cultures would cease to exist if they lost the war. And so they were willing to sacrifice anything and everything. It helps interpret even a little bit of what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, that's kind of the desperation that they feel. They believed in something bigger than themselves in their own lives. So historians over, you know, the last hundred years have collected 
male correspondence of all these soldiers, of many of these soldiers. In one case, I read this, this correspondence. It's a young French soldier writing to his father, and he describes like the horror of war. And he, at the end of his letter, he asks for prayer. And so the worried father responds, and he asks more specifically, how can I pray for you? Like, in what way do you want me to pray? Because the father believes that his, you know, his son's going to ask him for safety in battle, right? That's not how the soldier responds. This is what this young French soldier says. He says, Dad, pray that I will do my duty no matter the cost. Pray that I will have courage. That's his prayer request. Isn't that amazing? That's what we see in this text with the Apostle Paul. See, remember, guys, the context. Paul's in jail. There's no Wi-Fi, no weights, no satellite TV. He's cold. He's hungry. He thinks he's on death row, right? He doesn't think he's going to survive it. And so he asks the church at Ephesus, to pray. But what does he ask for specifically? First, he asks them to pray for other brothers and sisters, right? Pray that they're praying at all time in the spirit, verse 18. Right? He, in other words, he's like, he wants their training to take over. People who pray, people who pray actually think they're in danger. They're, 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 they pray because there's a neediness that they recognize, Right? They, 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 they're people who need and want to be vigilant. And so Paul says, pray. And then what does he have in mind? We'll look, look, continue in verse 18. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then at the very, very end of all, then he makes a prayer request for himself. And what does he ask for? Does he make a, a prayer request about his health? Or his conditions? No. Look what he writes in verse 19. He says, And then also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, Pray that I will do my duty. No matter the cost, pray that I'll have courage, that people will know that heaven is breaking in and making all things new in Christ. Pray that I'm vigilant, that I can see the enemy who hates this redemption, that my training will take over. I wonder, I mean, this challenges me because I wonder if we pray too much about our health and our ease. Listen, we should pray for the sick. I mean, Jason and I go and pray and anoint with oil regularly. This is a part of what we do to care for our people. We should, but we shouldn't pray only or primarily for the sick. Too often, I wonder if in our churches, we don't actually pray deeper than the sick list. How we pray shows what we value the most. If you guys remember this little book called The Prayer of Jabez? Okay, I'm not, okay, not going to talk about it. Here's the point. <laughs> how you pray demonstrates how you perceive your mission. Paul asks you to 
pray about the mission, that we would have courage to proclaim the gospel, that it would break in, that it would change the world, that it would change us forever. Why don't we change how we pray? Why don't we, let's do this. Let's make the mission of God the first thing that we pray about. Like even as you're praying for a meal, like praying for a meal is the most intuitive time to pray, right? What if, and even in that moment, you pray for your food like this. What if you said, God, thank you for this food, gratitude. But Lord, as we thank you for this food, use even the calories I get from this to strengthen me to complete your mission of redemption. Even the food is going back to the mission of God. See how that's even, that, that's even a different prayer. Make God's mission the first part of every prayer, you, every prayer that you utter. When you pray for your children, when you pray for your marriage, when you pray for your job, when you pray for the, 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 the war happening in Europe, all of it is about the gospel. Let's pray like that. All right, let me, let me uh, quickly finish up. Okay. You know when a preacher uses like special forces metaphors um, for his sermon, it could sound a little bit harsh. And I suppose it could sound something like this. Hey, everyone, you're a soldier in God's army. Fight hard and don't disappoint God. Um, if that's what you heard me say today, I, I'm so sorry. That's, that's not what I was, that was not what I was trying to do. I want to call you to action, but I want it for your sake. Because behind this sermon is this desire, this like pastoral desire, that I, what I want for you is to experience um, subjectively what is already objectively true. And let me explain what I mean. Paul says, he says, be strong in the Lord. He says, be strong in the Lord. Listen, we're, we're weak. We are. Like, we can't do this stuff. We're, we're totally going to be cowardly. And God says, I know, I know. Be strong in the Lord. All that armor of God stuff, helmet, belt, shield, sword, all of that is yours. I didn't ask you to make it. It's already yours. See, the gospel is ours, but we're not living in it. You know, when we began the sermon series in Ephesians, like the whole three chapters, beginning chapters, really hit over and over this idea of our union with Christ. All that we are, when we, when we are in Christ, all that is his is ours. And believing that, you guys, makes all the difference. And it would look something like this. You know, when, um, when Mia was young, she was like three years old, maybe four. Um, she loved to play outside. She's really good at sports. And um, it happened that my little three or four-year-old girl was out. We had this basketball court in front of our house. And so she went and played with all the six and seven-year-old boys. Um, and so I go out there just, you know, I'm just watching her play. And, well, you know, none of the boys were passing to my little girl. And they were rough, kind of knocked her around a little bit. 
And at one point, like, she runs off the court to me. I'm watching this, and she's crying, and she's like, I don't want to play anymore. And so I get down on one knee, and I say, hey, Mia, listen, will you, will you play basketball if I hold you? And she said, yeah. So I pick her up, and I get in the game. We crushed those little boys. <laughs> Mia was so proud. She was like talking trash. She's like, not in my house. Get that out of here. Like, I mean, she's talking trash. She's like, because we're dominating the game. Here's the point. That's union with Christ. We are tethered to Jesus. That's the point of all of this armor. You are putting on Christ. You're not earning Christ. You're enjoying him, living out a mission marked with incredible dignity. That is a life worth living. That's what Paul wanted for his brothers and sisters at Ephesus. That's what God is calling and wants for us today. Amen. Amen.